0: All right. Hey, good morning, you guys. and Thank you so much, Susie and uh, Jordan and Kirsten, of course. Uh, such a blessing that God has provided all these uh, wonderfully gifted people to uh, contribute to the service uh, each morning. We're super thankful for them. Uh, and as Susie said, there is nothing that can stop our worship of the Lord. And uh, I just want to say, if no one has said it to you yet, um, welcome back to the Purple Tear. And, uh, you know, nobody wanted to be back here, and yet here we are back here again. Um, But we'll say what we've said from the very beginning of all of this is that God is still bigger, isn't he, than the coronavirus. He wasn't surprised by the virus. He's not absent during the virus. In fact, he's still working through the coronavirus, and the church has never been closed by the coronavirus. Um we're just needing to do things a little bit differently than we're used to. And all I can say is that it is a good thing that I look so good on camera. So you you've got that to be thankful for. No I'm kidding. What I do want to say though is that it uh all of this is just really a matter of perspective and you know, I was kind of reflecting on something this week from First Peter uh, chapter 2, where Peter says this. In verse 5, he says, speaking to us as the church, he says that you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the stones of the church, right, the stones of this church, aren't the ones over on silverwood, right? Holding up the walls around the comfy pews. The stones of the church are each and every one of us. And what Peter's reminding us is that we are still standing, right? God is still building and he is still fitting us together each and every day. Peter says, building us up into a spiritual house. And of course, some of the ways in which he's doing that right now are just going to look different to us, but he's still doing it, right? Even here in the purple. And of course, we're praying about now, you know, about how it is that God wants to do, what it is that God wants to do, you know, different ways that we can continue to grow and to be built up as a spiritual house, whether we're in the purple or the red or the orange or I don't even know what comes after orange. But again, it's all about perspective. And I think our text today, once again, it could not possibly be more timely. So turn, turn if you will, to Acts chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 11, kind of where we left off last time. 11 through uh, 35 there, the end of the chapter. And once again, it is almost as though the Lord knew where we'd be as we'd be right here in our text today. Isn't it amazing how the Lord can do that? Because I think as we continue on with the Apostle Paul, I think that we're going to see how it was that Paul maintained a very healthy perspective in the midst of really what were his own very, very purple uh, circumstances. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, his word to us uh, this morning, so Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for uh just the privilege, Lord, the opportunity that we have to dig in, Lord, and to really dive in and to have you instruct and inform our lives through it. Lord, we pray uh that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest with us here today, Lord, we pray for open hearts and open ears. Uh, to hear what your spirit would say to each one of us, Lord. We pray you'd speak into our lives this morning, Lord. And we're counting on you doing it, Lord. We look forward expectantly to what it is you want to share with us. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, remember when we last left off with the Apostle Paul, things were actually starting to look up just a little bit. And you remember that he had been at the center of a riot there on the Temple Mount before he was kind of rescued by the Roman army and that Roman commander named Claudius Lysias. He had been, you know, Claudius then sort of convened this emergency meeting of the Jewish council, the, the Sanhedrin, right? That 70-member uh, group of religious men that ruled over the entire nation of Israel and and all of Judaism, really. But they too, we saw, ended up, they erupted into violence over Paul's proclamation that it was because of his belief in the resurrection, that was what it was for which he was really being judged by them. It was this assertion that immediately divided the council and inspired them to start arguing back and forth with one another over Paul before he was pulled once again from that scene and back to safety by the Roman guards. And then he was returned back into their protective custody until Lysias could figure out what to do with this troublemaking rabble rouser that he had on his hands. And remember, as we finished up, with Paul there, he was, it was in the dark of the night. He was all alone there, kind of in that jail cell. And no doubt he was disheartened. Uh, no doubt he was discouraged, kind of facing what he probably thought was a failure of these two opportunities that he had had to win over his Jewish brethren to faith in Jesus. But then we saw there was this beautiful divine promise was given to him. Look again at verse 11. It said that the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. We saw that Jesus had appeared to Paul just when Paul needed to hear from Jesus the most. And here, with everything that he had hoped to accomplish through this trip there to Jerusalem, now it all just kind of laid there like a heap in front of him. Things had turned out just the way that all the warnings from his friends and all the warnings from the prophets all along the way getting to Jerusalem, things had turned out just the way they all said it would with Paul in chains. And as we consider the condition that Paul is in By the time we get here to chapter 23, Paul is a man who desperately is in need of a word from the Lord which would somehow help him to regain his perspective concerning these circumstances that he is smack dab in the middle of. And that's exactly what God gave to him there in verse 11. He encourages him to take courage, right? Assuring him not only had he done a good job there in Jerusalem, right? No matter how bad things may have looked from his perspective, but what Jesus says is that from the perspective of heaven, it had been a success, that Paul's witness there was a success, and that as he had indeed done a good job there in Jerusalem, but there was more of that good job that needed to be done, and that Paul would continue to do it, ultimately, until he did it in Rome. And we think about how those words must have strengthened Paul. Because here's this divine promise of more work to do, which inherently is also a promise of continued pr- protection as Paul would be doing it, even in the midst of all of these challenging circumstances. So Jesus promised Paul three critical things. First of all, that he was present with him. He promised Paul that he was, had a plan for him and that he would provide protection to him as Jesus accomplished That plan through Paul and what more really could any of us want or need and I think that you know for any of us who've been through kind of a crushing trial in the course of our time as a Christian which probably is virtually all of us at one point or another. But, you know, those times where it seems that nothing has turned out exactly the way we had planned concerning some particular circumstance in our lives. And it's the kind of a trial that not only breaks our heart, but it breaks our heart and it breaks our lives in such a way that it completely disorients us. You know, the kind of thing where you just don't know up from down or right from left. You don't know how to move forward. You don't know whether or not you should move backward. But I think that that's precisely the kind of place that Paul now finds himself in. And he needed, as much as we need the same thing, he needed to be reminded that God is still present in our lives. He isn't sleeping, he isn't unaware of our circumstance, but he's always present, and he's especially present at these times when we feel like God is the most very, very far away. Jesus had provided Paul with exactly what he needed most, just when he needed it the most, because remember, Jesus knew that Paul needed it even more than Paul needed it. Because remember, we said last time that though Paul did know that things were bad, he didn't know exactly how bad things really truly were. He didn't know even the half of it. And yet, Jesus did. And Jesus came to him and he encouraged him. Because what we're going to read is that the very next morning, right after this beautiful divine promise is given to Paul, we're going to read about a deadly plot toward Paul. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says that when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And we think, well, wait a minute, what happened to be of good cheer? This certainly doesn't sound very cheerful to me. We've got this new day dawning. We find out that there are 40 Jewish assassins who had gathered together and were vowing to do this hunger strike until they had succeeded in murdering Paul. Now, what you need to know is that in these days, in the first century, there in Israel, there was a kind of a super secretive group of Jewish zealots, who routinely targeted the Romans and the supporters of the Romans. And they were kind of like dagger men because they very often would use these concealed daggers that they hid under their cloaks. And they would walk by in a crowd and suddenly reach out and just kind of stab a Roman soldier perhaps as they walked by in the crowd. And you talk about commitment. When it talks about them making an oath here to God, the idea isn't simply that they were kind of swearing to do something or promising to do something, maybe like we would. But the idea is that they believed so strongly That they were doing this on God's behalf. It's like they were saying, God, if we try and fail to kill Paul, then make our names a curse. Bring your judgment down upon us and we will not eat and we will not drink until Paul is dead. They were so very zealous. Notice they vowed not only that they wouldn't eat, but also that they wouldn't even drink Until Paul was dead, which tells us obviously that their intention was to finish the job pretty quickly. Now, we have to say that in a sense that this is just par for the course for the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Because his life has been in danger at the hands of these unbelieving Jews from the very beginning of his ministry. We think all the way back to Acts chapter 9 when he first witnessed for Christ in Damascus during his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. Remember how the Hellenistic Jews wanted to kill him. The Jews had driven him out of Antioch and Pisidia. They threatened to stone him at Iconium. He was stoned, remember, when he got to Lystra. In Corinth, the Jews tried to have him arrested. In Ephesus, they plotted to kill him. And remember, they even had that plan that they were going to kill him at sea and dump his body overboard. Now, all of that, not to minimize anything that any of us are going through, but all of that kind of puts each of our problems with people in our lives maybe into a little bit of perspective. But I think as dangerous as any of these past attempts on Paul's life might have been, this one certainly seems to be even more so. Because Again, we're talking here about 40 trained assassins, right? A small army of these Jewish guerrilla warriors. They're motivated, they're zealous, and what we see next is that they are organized and connected with the most powerful and the most influential men in all of Israel. Look at what Luke tells us next in verse 14. It says, They came to the chief priests and elders, and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So this plot extended right up to the highest levels of leadership of the city of Jerusalem and really in the entire religion of Judaism. These assassins had proposed to the Sanhedrin that they could help draw Paul out so that the assassins could take Paul out when he was vulnerable. Now, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about the fact that this was not a good thing for these godly leaders to be doing because we know that these were neither good nor were they godly men. These were power-hungry, misguided men who wanted only to kind of protect and to preserve their positions that they held over the people. It does show us how deeply corrupted the Judaism had become at that time that this group of Jewish religious leaders are working with these assassins in arranging to have Paul murdered. Of course, it was contrary to anything you would find anywhere in the Bible, let alone contrary to the entire law of Moses. Now, just quickly, in fairness to the Pharisees, which we know made up a good portion of the Sanhedrin, it appears probably that they had been left out of this whole loop because it talks about the assassins coming to the chief priests specifically. And remember, these were the positions that were held almost exclusively by the Sadducees, right the ruling class, the more liberal part of that Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees probably weren't informed because they wouldn't have involved themselves in this kind of a plot against a former Pharisee which they knew Paul to be. But at the very least we have the top leaders of the more liberal side now in league together using these assassins kind of as their muscle men to take Paul out and to do it in short order. Things are not looking good here we could say, for the Apostle Paul, at least not until what we see here in verse 16. It says, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Phew, isn't that a lucky break? First of all, lucky that the Apostle Paul apparently had a sister who apparently had a son who apparently just happened to hear about this plot as he was bopping around out and about in Jerusalem. And he just happened to be concerned enough about old Uncle Paul that he went down to the Antonia Fortress and told Paul about the entire plan. There's no question here, it seems as though Paul had won the superlotto of luck. At this point, or this is a beautiful example of God's providence beautifully at work in the life and in the circumstances that are surrounding the Apostle Paul. And it should be a reminder that that very same beautiful providence of God is always at work concerning our lives as well as it is, as we've talked about recently, concerning the affairs of the entire world. Now, one sort of a kind of a theological definition of the providence of God is that God not only upholds the existence and the natural order of the universe, but that he also intervenes in that natural order and in men's history as well. And the way that it works best for me to think about, and remember, we're talking about a great mystery here. We're certainly swimming in the deep end of the theological pool. This is far beyond anything that we probably could really formulate or understand in our minds. But we can think of it kind of as God ruling over all and overruling all for his purposes. In order to move human history toward his God-appointed end, whether he's doing it on a worldwide level or a national level or an organizational level or an individual level like each and every one of our lives. And I think so often as we look at the circumstances and the events of our lives, even as Christians, we can so often be prone to think of them as just kind of happenstance or coincidence or good luck or you know just good fortune forgetting that god's providence is always at work in our lives orchestrating the events of our lives so that he can move us forward in his will and his plan for each one of us and each time he does that understand that it's nothing less than a miracle Right, It's a, a supernatural intervention into the natural order of things. Where God steps into a situation, we don't see it, but God is completely and intimately involved, lining up perfectly the people and the place and the timing of the circumstances. And we don't recognize the miraculousness of what's happened until later and we look back and we start to think or maybe we say wow isn't it amazing how all of those things just happened to line up so perfectly that we would end up here in this place or that we'd end up over there in that place and yet all of it is god's providence at work in our lives like the fact that Paul's nephew knew exactly the, was exactly the right person who just happened to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to somehow happen, to somehow overhear about this plot against Paul. And again, we need to remember that every time this happens in our lives, it's nothing less than a miracle, and it's happening all day, every day. Because every time God keeps his word to us, every time God fulfills a promise for us, when our circumstances would seem to prevent him from fulfilling that promise, and yet he does it, that's a miracle. right? No matter how big, no matter how small it might seem, and people you know today, they want to see God do more miracles, and yet if we just look around, our lives as he's exercising his providence over our life as he's orchestrating and ordaining and moving each one of us forward toward this intended goal he has for us if we do that then what we see is that our lives are a constant and an unending miracle of God and him being faithful to his promises in the face of all of the circumstances that happen. And not just that he's doing it here in Paul's life. Or not that he's doing it in one of our lives or in 10 of our lives for whoever's listening this morning. But that he does it in each and every one of our lives and the lives of every Christian within this world. The Christian life is a miraculous life from start to finish. And what these 40 fasting assassins and these scheming Sadducees, what they had forgotten was that Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ and that the exalted Lord of heaven was watching over him from heaven. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, Then Paul called one of the centurions to him, and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander, and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you uh, they ask that you bring paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him but do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him and now they are ready waiting for the promise from you and so the commander let the man a young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So Claudius Lysias takes the report of Paul's nephew very seriously, and he prepares to take action, as we're going to see next, to try to save Paul's life. But before we do, I think there's something significant for us to notice here, and that's that the Lord... Is using two unbelievers, right? Not to mention the pagan power structure of the entire Roman Empire, but he's using these things to protect his servant and to advance the cause of Christ. Now, we don't know anything more about Paul's sister and nephew except this brief mention that's recorded right here. We certainly don't see Paul ever mentioning that they were co-laboring with him for the gospel anywhere in his work. But I think what we can assume is that since Paul's family had long been connected with the Pharisees, that his sister and his nephew were probably both still connected in those same circles. Now, why do we think that? Because if either of them had converted and had become believers in Jesus then they would have very quickly been shut out of those circles completely and likely not been in the position to stumble over or to overhear these secret plans to assassinate Paul. Though they were likely not believers, they still were devout Jews and they clearly could tell that this was an evil plot, not to mention they were still Paul's family, right? No matter how much they may have thought that Uncle Paul had kind of gone off the deep end with this whole Jesus business, right? Now, Commander Claudius, he wasn't necessarily a fan of Paul's personally, but he was a fan of keeping his own job. He was a fan of saving his own skin by not losing such an important prisoner of the empire. And all of that is simply to say this, that these people were simply doing what they would naturally do But God was using them supernaturally to accomplish his purposes on behalf of Paul. And I think that so often that is precisely why we don't recognize God's divine providence when it's at work. Because it so often appears to be so completely natural, so completely natural normal. We think about some of the greatest characters in all of the Old Testament from Joseph to Moses to Queen Esther to King David and each of them has a story where God supernaturally places them into very natural situations and then he works through these normal everyday events of those situations sometimes over the course of tens 20s and even more years but all the time he is providentially preparing them and he's advancing his program through them all of it he's working in his providence in in this promise over here and then supernaturally he's working in these circumstances that are happening over there until one day all of it comes to fulfillment Until one day Joseph saves his people, Moses leads his people free, Esther saves the people yet again, David finally becomes the king of God's people. And what was true of each of them, the Bible tells us, is also true of each and every one of us as Christians today. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul himself writes that in him we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That God is providentially working supernaturally through the natural until those purposes are finally fulfilled. So here he's working through Paul's young nephew. He's working through the Roman commander Claudius to quickly remove Paul from this imminent threat. So Claudius quickly realizes he needs to use the resources at his command to save his prisoner from the burning wrath of the Jews. And he called, it says in verse 23, he called for two centurions saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now I love this because not only was Paul going to be saved, but Paul was going to be saved in style. Right. This is the third time now in Paul's missionary career that he was about to be smuggled out of the city under the cover of night. But this time he was going to go not stuffed into a basket. Remember when they smuggled him out of Damascus about 25 years earlier. But this time he was going to go first class, right, riding upon a horse and actually multiple horses that Paul could choose to ride. He was going to be accompanied by 470 of Rome's finest fighting soldiers. He was going to be on this scenic trip to the seaside city of beautiful Caesarea, right? The seat of Roman government in the region, to appear before Felix, who was the Roman governor over that entire Roman province of Judea that would have encompassed most all of what we know of Israel today now this was a protection detail that would have made any king envious but again it wasn't for Paul's sake it was for Claudius Lysias's own sake right he was protecting himself as much as he was protecting Paul at least so he thought but I believe also that this was a very tangible way that Jesus was showing his own great care and concern for Paul. It was the fulfillment of that promise that he had just made to Paul the night before. It was as if God wanted to really exaggerate and to punctuate his faithfulness to Paul and to show Paul beyond a shadow of any doubt that the promise of Jesus was true. Don't you love it sometimes when God shows off his love for you in a really extravagant but such a personal way when maybe only you and he are aware that it was him doing it. I just picture Paul riding up there with this big smile, right? So we see next, here's this impressive protection detail that Claudius Lysias also sends along kind of a customary letter to Felix explaining why it was he was sending Paul to him. But also watch the way that Claudius does a little creative retelling of how things had come to this point. So this is Luke's official inclusion of this official communication. Look at verses 25 through 30. It says that he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Now, If this were a college-level creative writing course, then I would think that Commander Claudius Lysias would certainly get an A for effort. Because he did accurately lay out most of the facts, but he sort of conveniently forgot to mention the part about how he had illegally bound and nearly brutally beaten a Roman citizen within an inch of his life after he had mistaken him, remember, for an Egyptian insurrectionist. He made it sound instead like he valiantly rescued Paul because he was a Roman citizen, right? Like he had kind of portrayed himself as this defender of the public righteousness and certainly the hero of his own Story Now before we are too hard on our friend Claudius, I think we just maybe need to remember some of our own personal creative storytelling when we too may have sort of painted ourselves perhaps in a bit of a better light than things really happened. So maybe that's a different discussion for a different day. What's most interesting, I think, about Lysias' writing is that Luke includes it. He includes it here in this inspired record. And in fact, this is the only writing by a non-believer to be included in the New Testament. And Luke's purpose in including it is to highlight what Claudius affirms in verse 29, where he says, I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or death chains so it was the official finding of a roman official that his official investigation showed that paul was innocent of any charge not only innocent of a charge worthy of death but even innocent of any charge worthy of change and so for luke this was the important line in the letter Because he knew it was very possible that Roman officials would be reviewing the book of Acts as a matter of historical record, perhaps even before Paul's future trial in Rome before Caesar. And so here Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing the fact that other Roman officials had examined Paul's situation and determined that he was not guilty. So... Here we have, off goes Paul atop his horse, leaving Jerusalem nine o'clock at night with this letter and his escort of these 470 armed men. It says in verse 31 that then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. So here's a a detail Luke gives us that uh, the 200 soldiers only went as far as Antipatris, that was about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, because the most dangerous part of the journey was just up until that point. It was a much more hilly terrain. There were more Jews that inhabited that region. It was more likely that there would have been an ambush there, and the rest of that 37-mile trip up to Caesarea was more uh, sort of a flat area. There were more Gentiles that lived there, so Paul was out of harm's way. He'd been preserved from that plot against his life. Now, I know before we go on, I know there are some of you that are wondering, maybe even worried, about those 40 men who had just made that vow the day before to neither eat nor drink until they had successfully killed Paul. What would become of those guys? You know, were they just going to waste away down there in Jerusalem? Now, some suggest... Probably not, because at this point, the rabbis of the day had developed quite an elaborate system where you could find a loophole in order to break any vow that someone had mistakenly made to the Lord. So there was that. Now, there are others who believe that these 40 men were the very first to put themselves on what would later become known as the assassin's diet. Apparently, it became very popular across the region. They said it was guaranteed to kill off all of that excess weight, right? To, to carve away those excess inches, right? Now, what we hear is that people were just dying to try out this new Okay, so the soldiers get Paul safely out of Jerusalem, right? They get him up to Antipatris overnight. And then the next day it says in verse 33 that when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So they travel that last 37 miles up to Caesarea where Paul was officially then turned over to the custody of Felix. Now, this prompts kind of another potential question for poor Paul, and that's this. At this point, Paul was safe from those Jewish conspirators, but was Paul safe from Felix? Now, Marcus Antonius Felix was an absolutely cruel tyrant of a ruler, He enjoyed this kind of a meteoric rise from a life of slavery to a position of political prominence there in the Roman Empire, who is the only slave in Roman history to ever become such a high-ranking governor. He was a cruel character. He was only appointed to his role because his brother was a friend of Caesar Nero. And if you look at the resume of Felix, it featured multiple you know, power marriages, a handful of assassinations, all of these things for political purposes. In fact, the brilliant Roman historian Tacitus wrote this of Felix. He said that he executes the prerogatives of a king with the spirit of a slave. So although he was in power as a governor, he retained this kind of a mentality of a slave in his wanting to get back at the world for all of the abuses that it had heaped upon him. And he was absolutely ruthless in the way he did it. And so this was the man now in front of whom Paul would stand to be judged by him. Now we could look at this and we could think, you know, Certainly this seems like a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. And Paul would have been well aware of Felix and of Felix's history and his reputation. And yet I don't believe for a moment that Paul was the least bit rattled by even these more challenging circumstances. They seem to be heating up a little bit, but I believe that Paul lived his life with a perspective on his current circumstances that was very carefully informed by his understanding of God's providence. Again, God had given Paul a promise back in verse 11 that he would get to Rome and that he would testify of Jesus in that city. And that was this kind of a big picture promise. It's a providential promise And it now provides perspective to everything else that will happen to us in the small picture of our day-to-day circumstances. So for Paul, as difficult as his life would get, and it would get very difficult, but Paul had this big-picture promise to frame everything else. In very broad strokes, let me just tell you what the rest of Paul's story is going to look like in chapters 24 through 28 as we finish up in this final section of the book of Acts. We're going to see next week that he's going to spend two years as a prisoner of Governor Felix here in Caesarea. He'll spend the year after that on this treacherous journey just getting to Rome complete with a 14-day storm on the Mediterranean that results in a shipwreck on an island where Paul's going to be bitten by this venomous snake and then think to be cursed by the natives there, only to finally arrive in Rome where he then would spend another two full years as a prisoner, just awaiting a hearing and an opportunity to finally appear before crazy Caesar Nero himself. And of course, In the course of all of this, there were the death threats and the legal hearings and the slander and the accusations that were made against him. There was the waiting and 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 the more waiting for years and years to come, waiting for some kind of resolution of the absolute injustice of all of this that was going on and had turned his life upside down. That's the rest of the book of Acts. And it's one thing, I think, for us to to quickly summarize it or even to read it on the pages of the scriptures and to say, yes, of course, Paul went through those things and that's Paul's wonderful story. But just to stop and to ask ourselves, how do you possibly maintain your perspective in the midst of the micro of all of that, the nitty gritty, the the daily of all of that, how in the world did Paul manage to do it? And he managed it. He maintained his perspective by keeping his eyes on the bigger picture. Right, that God's promise to Paul that he would bear witness at Rome because that. That providential promise provided Paul with perspective. And so often when a counselor helps to counsel someone through a crisis, a question that often we'll ask is, you know, how will you look back at this five years from now? Or how will you look back at what's happening to you now ten years from now? And what that kind of a question does for someone in that kind of a crisis is it introduces hope. It introduces the possibility of a future. It injects a further timeline into the situation than they are capable of seeing for themselves in the midst of the circumstances of the storm of that crisis. They feel like it's absolutely consuming them. They can't imagine making it even to tomorrow or through next week, let alone five years or 10 years down the road. But when you ask that kind of a question, you've given them hope. There's now someone else who is seeing or someone else who's believing for them what they can't see or believe for themselves. It's that future timeline of that bigger picture. And so for Paul, in the course of all of the ups and downs and the highs and lows of all of these things, in the midst of each and every one of these circumstances, to ask himself at every turn, is this thing that's happening to me now, is it moving me closer to bearing witness to Jesus at Rome. And as hard as all of these circumstances will be, the very simple answer to that big picture question was always yes. Yes, it was. That God's providence was clearly being evidenced in each and every one of these circumstances. These were just the small details of the outworking of that big picture so as we finish up here we have this letter from Lysias presented to Felix along with Paul as the prisoner of Rome it says in verse 34 that when the governor had read it he asked what province he was from and when he understood that he was from Cilicia He said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Felix, we think, was probably hoping that perhaps Paul came from somewhere else that required that someone else would be responsible to hear his case. And yet he finally agreed that, yes, indeed, he would need to make a ruling, but he's going to put things off until a hearing could be assembled. And we'll see, as we just said, that he managed to put things off and not make a ruling for another two years. In fact, he would never rule on Paul's case. He left Paul in this sort of a house arrest until finally Felix was finished with his term as governor and left office. But notice that during all of that time, Paul wasn't held in the common prison. He wasn't even held in a private prison cell because Herod's Praetorium was far from being a dungeon. It was the royal palace that was built by Herod the Great sitting right on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. That was the place where Felix himself would have had his offices. And so this was a nice small detail in Paul's big picture now as we close yes Paul had this wonderful big picture promise that he was going to make it to Rome but what about each one of us we don't necessarily have that promise there there are some of us maybe who have something similar some of us may have something that the Lord has impressed upon our hearts kind of a a promise for our lives and the direction of our lives that that for us it kind of guides us maybe for you like it's like the north star not all of us have that but what we do all have as believers in Jesus we all have this kind of a north star big picture promise given to us by the lord in his word, through the Apostle Paul himself. I'm sure you've been thinking of it all morning. You've been wondering why I haven't mentioned it yet. We even ended our time with it last time, if you remember. And this big picture verse that helps us to process and to interpret all of the little picture of the darkness, maybe of the daily and the weekly of our lives, and to look at that in light of the reality of the overarching providence of God at work in our lives is romans 8 verse 28 right we don't even need to put it on the screen because you probably know it already by heart but it says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are the called according to his purpose it is one of the greatest verses on the providence of god in all of the entire Bible. And it encourages us in the fact that as we live our lives out in the daily nitty-gritty little picture of life and all of the trials and the imprisonments and the false accusations and the storms and the shipwrecks and the snake bites that we all endure, that above all of it, that God is personally and he is actively working everything together for good. Notice the promise isn't that all things are good because they're not, right? Not all things are good in life. It also doesn't say that God will only allow good things to come into my life. That's not what he did with Paul. It's not what he does in our lives as well. The promise is that God will work even those not good things together for good, right? That he will rule over all, he will overrule in the circumstances of our lives, and he will make them to accomplish his purpose for our lives, which Paul then conveniently tells us in the very next verse, after the promise comes the purpose. In Romans 8, 29... Paul tells us that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we always think of good as a better car or a better home or a better job or maybe just a better situation. But God doesn't view good in that way. God defines Working all things together for good in our lives, in that it works to conform us into the image of his son. So he is making us more like Jesus, right? Working us into the greatest life that a person can possibly live this side of glory. And so rather than us asking is this trial or this circumstance moving me closer to my arrival in Rome, the question for us to ask as we try to maintain our perspective is to ask of the circumstance are these circumstances producing godly character in my life? Is this circumstance in my life Is it working to conform me more and more into the image of Christ in a way that perhaps nothing else could? Am I learning things about God? Am I learning about his wisdom and his love and his power in this circumstance? Am I learning things that probably, knowing myself, I could not learn any other way? And if we can answer yes to any of those questions then we are on the road to properly recognizing the providence of god that is always at work in our lives and as he moves us towards that ultimate purpose for us that we are more like jesus and when we start to evaluate the things that we see in the little picture And we start to evaluate them through that perspective that the big picture now provides to us, well, then we start to see God's fingerprints over everything that happens to us, even the purple tier of our good governor's plan. It doesn't seem very good to us, but God is working it for good to accomplish his purpose in conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, Lord, and we do thank you for the great purpose, Lord, that you have for each one of us, Lord, that providential big-picture promise of what it is that you're doing in each one of our lives, Lord, where it is that you're taking us, in our lives, Lord, we do want to be more like Jesus, Father, and we thank you that you are able to use all of these challenges, Lord, the circumstances that we face and the trials that we endure, Lord, even those crushing trials, Lord, we, we trust you, Lord, and we rest in you that you're using those things to accomplish a work that otherwise, Lord, we wouldn't be willing to to have you accomplish, Lord. We want to be more like Jesus, Lord, and we thank you so much for the way that you produce that in us. And so we love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you oh my soul rejoice take joy my king in what you hear let it be a sweet sweet sound in your ear Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Uh, Regroup Wednesday night on the live stream. And then, of course, Thursday, uh, have a blessed Thanksgiving. Uh, And if you're out there and you need help uh, this Thanksgiving, please let us know. We're here and we want to help Uh, to provide for you so that you can have a blessed Thanksgiving as well. So God bless you guys. We will see you uh, next week, uh, if not before. All right, God bless.